0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, Mary Lyons was beginning her shift at the Bank of America branch office in Maplecroft Plaza in Cheshire, Connecticut. It was the 23rd of July, 2007, a Monday, so Mary knew that it was going to be a busy day. By 9.30 a.m., there was already a line of customers ready to go about their financial transactions after the weekend. A middle-aged woman approached the counter. Mary noticed immediately that she had a terrified look in her eyes. Her face was ashen. The woman quietly told Mary that her name was Jennifer Pettit and that she and her family were being held hostage at their home by two men. She needed to withdraw $15,000 to bring to the men one of whom was in her car in the parking lot, waiting for her to return. Jennifer told Mary that if police were contacted, her children and husband would be killed. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 35 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. The Pettit family were the quintessential all-American family. Dr. William Pettit was a prominent endocrinologist and medical director at the Joslyn Diabetes Center Affiliate at the Hospital of Central Connecticut in New Britain. Dr. Pettit was dedicated to his career, often working 12-hour shifts. He was also a keen writer, having co-authored several books, including The Natural Solutions to Diabetes and The Encyclopedia of Diabetes. His wife, Jennifer, was a well-liked nurse and co-director at the health center in Cheshire Academy, a local private boarding school. In her place of employment, she was known as a friend, peer, and confidant for the students. As Philip Moore, the school's director of communications, said to the Hartford Current. If anybody ever wanted someone taking care of the kids when they were not right there with you, it was her. She's a mom and a health professional. That's how she approached her job. It didn't matter to Jennifer if it was 3 p.m. or 3 a.m. If a child was sick, Jennifer would be at their bedside taking care of them. She took a no-nonsense approach, which was something that her students appreciated, and many looked at her like a second mother. Dr. Pettit and Jennifer met back in 1981 while working beside each other at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. Jennifer confided in her friends that Dr. Pettit was the most intelligent man she had ever met. She was highly impressed with the pleasant bedside manner he provided his patients and their families. Dr. Pettit felt the same about Jennifer, but he was far too nervous to ask her out. After conversing for several months, Dr. Pettit finally gathered the courage and asked Jennifer out on a date. It certainly wasn't a conventional first date. At the time, Dr. Pettit's parents were visiting from out of state, and he decided he would bring them along as well. Jennifer didn't mind. In fact, she found it quite endearing. The couple were married on the 13th of April, 1984. They said, I do, at a historic church in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Dr. Pettit's father, Richard, was a Methodist minister. He performed the wedding ceremony alongside a chaplain that the couple knew. In 1988, they moved to Cheshire, Connecticut. The town of Cheshire has a suburban and homely feel. Surrounded by picturesque heritage trails and a quaint downtown area, it looks like the kind of town one would see on a postcard. On the 15th of October, 1989, Jennifer gave birth to their first baby girl. They named her Haley Elizabeth. Six years later, Michaela Rose came along. Life for the family was good. Dr. Pettit and Jennifer were raising their girls to be compassionate towards others. They wanted them to follow in their footsteps and approach life in a sensitive manner. Faith was also a significant factor in the family's lives. Sundays were spent at the United Methodist Church where Jennifer taught Sunday school, sang in the choir, and served on committees. By 2007, Haley had graduated from Miss Porter's School in Farmington, where she had been co-captain of the crew team, as well as a member of the cross-country and basketball teams. She had also been co-editor-in-chief of the school's Journal of Scholarly Writing. She was taking after her father in her love for writing. She also had ambitions to become a doctor, hoping to get a placement in the prestigious Dartmouth College, the same alma mater as her father. Michaela was a student at Chase Collegiate School in Waterbury, where she was a hard-working student. She made friends with ease and was a fine athlete and gifted in music. Her musical knack was something she had picked up from her mother, who played piano, guitar, and sang. Michaela had recently picked up a keen interest in the Food Network channel. She was interested in learning to cook meals for her family. A couple of years beforehand, Jennifer had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and the family were all active in the Connecticut chapter of the Multiple Sclerosis Society. Haley had even formed a fundraising team, which she named Haley's Hope. Over the course of eight years, the team had raised $54,000 for the cause. Michaela had ambitions to continue the legacy by adding Michaela's miracle to the campaign. The 22nd of July, 2017, started out like any other summer day for the family. Dr. Pettit played golf with his father that morning while Jennifer and the girls went to the beach. Michaela wanted to make pasta for dinner that night, so she and her mother drove to stop and shop to purchase ingredients. After dinner, Jennifer, Michaela, and Haley watched television before retiring to bed. Dr. Pettit fell asleep on an easy chair on the sun porch. Just after 2 a.m., he abruptly woke up with an aching pain coming from his head and blood flowing down his face. He tried to move but was unable to do so. He looked down to see that his hands and ankles were bound and he was in the basement. There were two men standing in front of him, masks concealing their faces. One was holding a baseball bat while the other was holding a gun. Based on the evidence, he knew he had been knocked unconscious with the baseball bat while asleep. I wasn't sure at first if it was a dream or if I was awake, he later recollected. He was asked by the men where the safe was. He said there was no safe. The men then left Dr. Pettit alone in the basement, bleeding from the head injury. Upstairs, Jennifer and Michaela were fast asleep in the master bedroom. They were abruptly awoken by the two men who ordered them to lie on their stomachs while bound with rope. The unknown men then went into Haley's bedroom and did the same to her. Back in the master bedroom, the men explained they were there to rob them. With the family immobilized, the two men began to rummage around the home in search of money. They were unsatisfied with the lack of money, but as they continued searching, they found a check register with $40,000 in it. The men came up with an idea. Jennifer was going to go to the bank when it opened and lift out thousands of dollars for them. When 9 a.m. rolled around, one of the men forced Jennifer into the car and drove her to the bank, where she withdrew $15,000 and explained what had happened to the bank teller back at the home. She said the men had threatened that if the police were contacted, they would be killed. As Jennifer left the bank, the teller called 911. We have a lady who says that her husband and children
2: are being held at their house. The people are in a car outside the bank. She is getting 15,000 dollars to bring out to them. If the police are told, they will kill
0: the children and the husband. She says they are being very nice, and they told us they wouldn't hurt anybody.: Back at the home, Jennifer was tied up once more. Down in the basement, Dr. Pettit was still drowsy from the attack. Fading in and out of consciousness when he heard one of the men upstairs state, Don't worry, it's going to be all over in a couple of minutes. He got a dose of adrenaline, knowing all too well what those words most likely meant. His skull was cracked open, but he managed to wriggle his hands free. With his legs still bound, he was able to hop up the basement steps that led outside. By this point, police arrived on the scene, setting up a perimeter. Doctor Pettit was unaware, so he crawled over to his neighbor's house and raised the alarm. What's your mercy, are you police? Yes, I got Bill Pettit here who's hurt. My neighbor. Okay. All right, yes. Get in the house. You two, get in the house. Get in the house.
1: I, I need a 101 here now. Now,
0: police came to the neighbor's home and asked if anybody was still inside the house. All Doctor Pettit could say was, "The girls." Glancing back towards his home, he could see flames and smoke billowing from the windows. His family was still inside. As Dr. Pettit was making his escape, so were the two intruders. Upon exiting the home with their loot and cash, they jumped into the Pettit's Chrysler Pacifica parked in the driveway. They rammed into a police cruiser that had attempted to cut them off and sped off across the front lawn. From there, they drove west on Sorghum toward a police roadblock that had been set up. They only got some 500 feet away before hurling into two police cruisers positioned in the middle of the roadblock. The Chrysler Pacifica rolled 30 feet before coming to a halt on a nearby lawn. With their weapons drawn, police surrounded the car and ordered the two men to surrender. They slowly exited the car with their hands above their heads. They were swarmed by the police officers and arrested. Nearby, the Pettit household continued to burn. Down at the police station, the two suspects were identified as 26-year-old Joshua Kamasarevsky and 44-year-old Stephen Haynes. Kamasarevsky was born on the 10th of August, 1980, to a teenage mother and an older father. The inexperienced couple were not prepared for the responsibility of a baby and placed him up for adoption. They knew that a newborn would stand a much better chance at adoption than an older child. And Kamasarevsky wasn't waiting long for a new family. At just two weeks old, he was adopted by Ben and Jude. The couple had been trying to conceive for years, but due to infertility problems, they were met with heartbreak each month. Ben and Jude referred to Kamasarevsky as a miracle. They had tried so hard to have a baby of their own and now they were blessed with a newborn they could raise to be their own. The small family lived in a converted barn in Cheshire. Ben provided for the family, working as an electrician, and Jude was a stay-at-home mother. A couple of years later, Ben and Jude wanted to add to their family. They fostered a teenage boy, Scott, who had intellectual disabilities. Komisarevsky was just four years old when he began being molested by the older boy. Scott also physically abused Kamasarevsky, frequently burning him with cigarettes. The sexual abuse went on for around two years. During that time, Ben and Jude gave birth to a baby, a little girl called Naomi. She, too, became a victim of Scott. When the abuse was finally uncovered, Kamasarevsky and Naomi never received any counseling or therapy to help them through the traumatic ordeal. The family was deeply religious— they opposed counseling, therapy, and medications, and instead looked toward their faith for help. As Jude said, psychologists were instruments of the devil. Jude and Ben also strongly believed that homosexuality was an abomination. In this environment, Kamasarevsky grew up thinking of himself as sinful. Scott was removed from the home while Kamasarevsky and Naomi were removed from public school and homeschooled according to religious precepts. As can often be a recurring theme in child abuse, the abused became the abuser. While growing up, Kamasarevsky had been overly protective of his younger sister. He soon began to sexually abuse her, copying what his older brother had done to him. When Naomi was nine years old, she confided in her parents about the sexual abuse. Once again, instead of seeking help for their children, Ben and Jude simply moved Naomi's bedroom downstairs, away from Kamasarevsky's bedroom. They also forbid the brother and sister from ever being alone together. Following this, Kamasarevsky began to change. Gone was the little boy who enjoyed playing in the woods with friends and riding his bicycle. And in his place was a little boy who instead took pleasure in peeking into the girls' changing rooms at school peeping through the neighbor's windows and stealing underwear from clotheslines. Komisarevsky's behavior began to deteriorate even further when, at 12 years old, he suffered a concussion during a car accident. He confided to his mother that he had begun seeing and hearing demons in his bedroom late at night, an experience which left him traumatized. Then, when Komisarevsky was 14 years old, his grandfather, John Chamberlain, passed away. His death left Kamisarevsky bereft, and he struggled with the unfamiliar emotions that come with the death of a loved one. His grandfather had been sick for some time. Komisarevsky had liked to visit him daily and read to him. One day, his parents decided that he needed a break from the melancholy of the visits, so Ben took his son to a football game. It was during this football game that his grandfather passed away. Kamisarevsky felt a tremendous amount of guilt, not being by his grandfather's side as he took his last breath. As Kamisarevsky developed into a teenager, he began sneaking out of the family home late at night, committing arson and stealing weapons. In 1995, when Kamisarevsky was 15 years old, his parents called the police to share their fear that he was being lured into a satanic cult. Before placing the phone call, they had found a machete on their son's bed and what they described as satanic symbols scratched across the wall. When his parents discovered that he had been self-harming, they finally decided he needed an intervention. He was admitted to Elmcrest Mental Health Facility, but Ben and Jude opted out of telling the doctors about the sexual abuse that had been inflicted on him as a child, as well as about the sexual abuse he had inflicted on his sister. Doctors at Elmcrest Mental Health Facility suggested that he be prescribed the antipsychotic drug Thorazine, but his parents refused and removed their son from the hospital. In an attempt to get their son away from the dark influences that were corrupting him, the family moved from Connecticut to New Hampshire. Here, Kamasarevsky was enrolled in a Christian Day Center for Troubled Teenagers. After he was caught stealing, however, he was expelled. Shortly thereafter, Kamisarevsky joined the Army Reserve, where he completed his basic training at Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri. Here, he learned to operate heavy machinery. Upon his arrival home, Kamisarevsky found employment at a ski area near Rochester in New York. While the demanding job should have kept him busy, he couldn't steer clear of criminal activity. He soon returned to Connecticut, where he became involved in drugs. In 2002, his girlfriend was transported to the hospital to give birth to their baby girl. Komosarevsky was not present at the birth. He was serving time in prison for a string of burglaries. This was the beginning of a long stretch of burglaries. With each home that he broke into, he was gaining more experience. The sun was slowly fading on the 22nd of July, 2007, when Komasarevsky drove to a stop-and-shop in the town of Cheshire. He was here to meet with a contractor who owed him money for a job he had carried out. While waiting, he spotted Jennifer and Michaela, who were there shopping for ingredients for Michaela's homemade pasta sauce. Komisarevsky later said that he found the girl attractive and decided he would follow them home. As Jennifer and Michaela climbed into their car and began their short journey home, Komisarevsky trailed closely behind. At
2: that, uh, at that point I had, uh time? Well, was like. um, about 6 o'clock or so. In the evening? In the evening. And I was waiting for a contractor uh, to make payment. And, uh, while waiting, I saw a mother and a daughter walking to, a, to uh, the shopping shop. noticed that they were driving a very nice vehicle. and didn't really think much of it. At the time, the contractor had shown up and we were discussing business and, and making payment. Um, at which point, uh, about 15 minutes later, the mother came back out uh, with the daughter and got in their car as the contractor was also driving off where we had completed our transaction. For whatever reason, I chose to follow the mom and the daughter to their house and saw that they lived in a very nice house, very nice car, and thought it would be nice to be there someday, not have to worry about financial problems and stress
0: He followed their Mercedes into Sorghum Mill Drive in the Deaconwood neighborhood. He was impressed with the half-a-million-dollar homes fronted by well-manicured lawns and encompassed by tree-lined avenues. Jennifer and Michaela pulled into the driveway. It was a colonial-style house adorned with flowers out front. It consisted of eight rooms, a sun porch, and a brick fireplace. In the back garden, there was a basketball hoop and a trampoline. As Komosarevsky watched the mother and daughter enter the home, he felt a wave of jealousy overcome him. The Pettit family were wholesome American perfection, and Komosarevsky wanted what they had. After observing the home for a while, he concocted a plan, and he had the perfect partner in crime in mind, Stephen Hayes. Kamasarevsky and Hayes had met at a halfway house around two months earlier. They reveled in their shared love for burglaries. They periodically broke into Cheshire homes before setting their sights on the at home. Much like Kamasarevsky, Hayes had also been sexually abused as a child. As a coping mechanism for his trauma, he turned to drugs. He had a predisposition for violence, and as a teenager, he inflicted horrible abuse on his younger brothers and sisters. On one occasion, he forced his brother Matthew's hand onto a red hot stove top. He also pointed a gun at his younger brother's head and warned him he was lucky it wasn't loaded. Frequently, Haynes would get into trouble and then skirt the responsibility by blaming his brother and allowing him to take the punishment. It wasn't just Hay's siblings that he inflicted abuse upon, but also his mother. When she refused to give him money one day, he hit her in the face before stealing money from her and then stealing her car. Throughout Hay's life, he struggled with drug addiction and theft and found himself in and out of jail for various charges. Then, in 1996, he was hitchhiking to Torrington. While passing the Napog Reservoir in New Hartford, he spotted an empty car at the side of the road. As he approached the car, he noticed a purse in the back seat. He smashed the window with a rock he found nearby, but not satisfied with just the purse, he stole the car as well. Hayes then embarked on an 11-day crime spree, during which he broke into numerous cars. He had followed a particular modus operandi that local police quickly caught on to. His methods were so predictable that police set up a trap to ensnare him. They used an officer's personal car and placed a purse in the front seat to lure Hayes in. It worked like a charm, and he fell right into the trap. He was sentenced to five years in prison for the string of thefts, but once he was released, he continued his life of crime. He mostly broke into homes and continued to steal cars. In fact, in 2003, he was caught at the Napaug Reservoir, attempting to break into cars. During his life of crime, Hayes fathered two children with a woman named Rosalie Olivieri. Due to his recurring stints in prison, however, he had very little involvement in their lives. When his daughter, Alicia, was 11 years old, he attempted to kick his drug addiction, but the attempt was fleeting. While serving time in prison on a drug charge, Hayes wrote a letter to his son, Stephen. It read, I know you're getting older, and I haven't been there for you at all. In the letter, Hayes acknowledged that addiction had ruled his life and had led to the breakdown of every single interpersonal relationship he had ever had. Over the years, Hayes had stolen from just about everybody he knew, including his family, as a means to fund his addiction. In the days before Komosarevsky approached Hayes with the idea to break into the Pettit family home, Hayes had been kicked out of his mother's house. He had no money, no home, and no car. His life was again beginning to unravel, and he went on a drug binge. The combination of Komosarevsky and Hayes was a tumultuous one. Between the two men, they had 38 felony convictions. These crimes, however, were not considered violent, so they were never handed a sentence that was strict enough. They would serve their sentence and then be paroled by a small administrative panel which did not interview parolees or obtain psychological analysis. Once out of prison, they continued to go astray. Komosarevsky and Hayes were like children at Christmas as they texted about their disturbing plan for that night. Hayes texted, I'm chomping at the bit to get started. I need a margarita soon. Komisarevsky replied, "'I'm putting the kid to bed. Hold your horses.'" At around 9 p.m. that night, Kamasarevsky picked up Hayes in his mother's car. They drove to a bar in Cheshire where they had a beer and a shot. Each drink only intensified their excitement. From the bar, they drove around aimlessly before pulling up outside the petted home at about 2 a.m. It was a dark night, but the street was well illuminated by the streetlights. They wore dark-hooded sweatshirts and masks as they slowly approached the house. Kamasarevsky was armed with a baseball bat while Hayes carried a BB gun.
2: Okay. So now you, you approached the house. No other weapons? No other weapons? No. no. We approached the house and uh, went around back to see who was you know, putting any lights on or anyone was awake. At which point, we noticed that the father was sleeping downstairs. Here's a cell room. Which is where? From the front of the house, side, it's, it's in the, the back of the house. Okay. Uh, we continued to, to do a walk around the house, checking windows and doors, uh, all of which were locked. Until uh, so, uh, we came to the dope door, the, of the rear of the house. We um, went down to the basement, which was unlocked.
0: They gained entry via the basement door. They slowly crept up the stairs to find an unlocked basement door leading into the home. Cheshire had a reputation as a safe community, so this wasn't a surprise to either man. The first person they encountered was Dr. Pettit, fast asleep on the sun porch. Komoserevsky snuck up on him. He stood around a foot away, lifting up the baseball bat over his head and bringing it crashing down on Dr. Pettit's head.
2: Did you strike him? Can you tell us where and how many times you struck, struck. Yes, ma'am. And, uh, he all he this man? I hit in the head with a baseball bat. He let out this unworthy scream. And, and just, I couldn't take the scream, but I've never hit anybody in the head with you know, anything.
0: just staring and Hayes dragged Dr. Pettit down to the basement and tied him up with cotton rope they found inside the home. the two men then proceeded up the stairs where Jennifer Michaela and Haley were fast asleep utterly oblivious to the horrors unfolding downstairs. First, they entered the master bedroom. Hayes crept up beside Jennifer, while Kamisarevsky crept up beside Michaela. They covered their mouths and slowly shook them awake. They ordered them to roll over onto their stomachs and put their hands behind their backs. They complied, and Kamisarevsky and Hayes tied their hands and feet with a cotton rope. With Jennifer and Michaela immobilized, they entered Haley's bedroom and shook her awake.
2: She knows. My mother wasn't surprised uh, about what was going on. That's what we wanted, and please, not to hurt her. You know, go explain. Explain to her that we weren't here to hurt her. We were just looking for money, and then we'd be on our way.
0: Haley was terrified and begged the men not to harm her. Kamasarevsky and Hayes then began looking for money. Jennifer assisted them in their search, informing them where certain items of value were kept, including her jewelry. Kamasarevsky said he wasn't interested in such items. They were there strictly for the money. Unsatisfied with the loot, Kamasarevsky and Hayes decided they would force Jennifer to withdraw $15,000 from the bank.
2: Mother had mentioned that there was no faith. And Steve had, uh, found a check register, uh, with the, uh, the amount of 1000 dollars in it. And, uh, we discussed the possibility of possibly sending the mother down to the bank to retrieve a, uh, some amount of $15,000. Uh, we didn't want to withdraw the full amount of $40,000 in fear of raising some kind of red flag on the bank.
0: Um, um, They told her that if she complied and did not inform anybody at the bank what was going on back at the home, then she and her family would be safe. As they waited for 9 a.m., Kamasarevsky moved Michaela into her own bedroom, where he tied her spread eagle to the bed. He then proceeded to do the same to Jennifer and Haley in their respective bedrooms. Once separated from her mother, Michaela became much more fearful. Kamisarevsky entered her bedroom.
2: And I then went into KK's room and again uh, sat down and, and we were talking about um, just, 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 I guess, just the best time. And how old do you think KK is? Between 14, 14 and 16. Okay. The and the other sister you thought was how old? Um, between 18 and 19. Okay, so KK, obviously uh, she told you her nickname or whatever is KK, or you made that up? No, that's the date that both her sister and her mother uh, referred to her okay. as. Okay. Um, so you're talking so to KK about oh, just general and the, school and summer plans and stuff like that, or her summer plans are. I was thinking not mine. But,
0: He offered her a glass of water and then chatted about music. Kamasarevsky and Hayes decided they would wait out the night. In the morning, they were going to drive Jennifer to a local bank where she could lift out $15,000. The two men had already decided how the ordeal was going to end. At around 8 a.m., Hayes drove to a nearby BP gas station with plastic containers he had found in the family's garage. At the gas station, he filled up these plastic containers with gasoline. While Hayes was at the gas station, Komisarevsky entered Michaela's bedroom.
2: And yeah. one thing led to another, and I ended up having my performing oral sex on KK. You performed oral sex on KK? On KK. Did you do that while she was tied? Uh, yes. Was it against her will? Korea's with her people. Was it against her will or she is something you talked her into? How did that go? Uh, it started off as against her will, um, and like she wasn't like resisting or anything, so I just kept
0: doing it. <laughs> she was bound on her bed as Kamasarevsky sexually assaulted her and took explicit photographs with his cell phone. He then asked Michaela to have a shower and change into fresh clothing. When Hayes returned with the gasoline, they waited until 9 a.m. Hayes bundled Jennifer into the car and drove her to the Bank of America branch office in Maplecroft Plaza. He pulled up outside, making sure to strategically angle the car so that he could see inside the bank. He warned Jennifer not to do anything stupid, that her life and the lives of her family were at stake. Jennifer said she agreed. When Jennifer entered the bank, there was already a queue of people. Jennifer had time to think. She feared what was going to happen when she arrived back home. She needed to put her family first. Once at the front of the counter, Jennifer disclosed the situation back at home to the bank teller. The teller called 911 as Jennifer and Hayes traveled back to the family home. Moments after their arrival, police began to assemble on the tree-lined street. They set up a vehicle perimeter and began to assess the situation. From a police radio, they were ordered, hang back from that location. Once inside the home, Hayes placed the envelope containing the $15,000 in a backpack, while Kamisarevsky bound Jennifer and left her in the living room. As Kamisarevsky left the living room, Hayes entered. He ripped off Jennifer's underwear and sexually assaulted her. As the sexual assault was taking place, Kamasarevsky heard the basement door slam. He screamed to Hayes that Dr. Pettit had just escaped. Kamasarevsky and Hayes then looked out the window to see that police were surrounding the home. Hayes felt a surge of rage wash over him, as he knew that Jennifer hadn't listened to his demands at the bank. She must have told somebody. Hayes then wrapped his hands tightly around Jennifer's neck and squeezed until she stopped moving. Get his blood.
2: And um, was racing uh, towards the room that he was in, and uh, he was then coming back towards me. And as we we're converging on the, the basement door, uh, I could see behind Steve that uh, the mother was uh, laying lifeless on the floor, uh, with her head on the of seat, um, and her pants were down around her ankles. So she's she's in your opinion lifeless. Her pants are down by her ankles, That's which they hadn't been at any time prior to this. Never, no. And did you check on her? Did you ask him what he did? No, because my primary concern at that point was the father taking off the basement door. What made you think she was lifeless? Um, her, her face doesn't keep deep purple from
0: the neck up, like bluish, purplish, like cool blood. As their mother was murdered, Haley and Michaela were still tied to their respective beds, their sight concealed by pillowcases. Moments later, the girls could hear liquid being sloshed around their bedrooms by Komisarevsky and Hayes. The distinct smell made them all too aware that the liquid was gasoline. Outside, police officers who had gathered could hear the girls screaming. Moments later, they saw large flames emanating from the home. Then... They saw Kamasarevsky and Hayes attempt to escape from the scene, stealing the family's car and then crashing into a patrol vehicle. Their car went spinning, and when it rolled to a halt, they were surrounded by the officers, all of whom had their guns drawn. They were arrested without incident. Meanwhile, police officers tried to enter the petted home, searching for Jennifer, Michaela, and Haley. They were beaten back by the intense smoke and flames. When they opened the front door, the introduction of oxygen only made the fire worse. When the inferno was finally extinguished, police officers entered the home. They knew it was unlikely that anyone was going to be found alive. The fire damage to the home was extensive, particularly to one side of the house. Upon entering, they proceeded upstairs. They found the lifeless body of Haley at the top of the staircase she had managed to free herself from the binds securing her to her bed and had desperately attempted to escape the blaze. There was extensive fire damage to her body, indicating that she was on fire either before or after death. Her clothing smelt of gasoline. Her cause of death was smoke inhalation, and it was determined that it had taken two minutes to several minutes for her to die. The officers continued in their sweep. In Michaela's bedroom, they found her still bound to her bed. Her bedroom was furthest away from the origin of the fire, and it wasn't as damaged as the rest of the home. As they approached Michaela, they hoped that she was still clinging to life. When they got closer, however, they realized that she wasn't. Her body was limp. She had died of smoke inhalation. Much like Haley, her clothing also smelt of gasoline. In the living room, they found the deceased body of Jennifer, she was burned beyond recognition, but her ultimate cause of death was strangulation. Gasoline had also been poured over her body, feeding the flames.
1: After the
0: arrests, Komosarevsky and Hayes were arraigned on charges of assault, sexual assault, kidnapping, burglary, robbery, arson, larceny, and risk of injury to children. Judge Christina G. Donnell set bail for Komosarevsky and Hayes at $15 million each, stating that more charges would be pending. Over at the hospital, Dr. Pettit was informed that his wife and daughters had been killed. He was left with survivor's guilt and questioned how he could have survived while the rest of his family died. Jennifer's parents, Richard and Mary Bell, rushed to the hospital so they could be by his side. When they entered the room, Dr. Pettit said, I'm sure you wish it was Jennifer lying here and not me. I'm so sorry I didn't do more to stop them. He was being treated for severe head injuries. His pastor, Reverend Stephen Volpe, said, He's doing okay physically, Emotionally, he is devastated and still worried about others. Four days later, Dr. Pettit was allowed to leave the hospital so that he could attend the funeral of his wife and daughters. It was a private funeral held at the Bailey Street Funeral Home in Plainville. A couple of days later, a public memorial was held on Whiting Street in Plainville. The community had been rocked by the tragic home invasion and they wanted to come together to pay their final respects to the family. Dr. Pettit spoke to the crowd.
2: If there's anything to be gained from the senseless deaths of my beautiful family, it's first us all go forward, then help a neighbor, fight for a cause, love your family, do some of these things with your family in your own little way to spread the work of these three wonderful women.
0: In the wake of the home invasion, police were hit with a slew of criticism for how they handled the case. Many felt that Hayes should have been stopped at the bank by security or should have been intercepted as he drove home with Jennifer. When the 911 call came in, a patrol vehicle was less than a mile away from the bank. It was certainly possible that this patrol vehicle could have intercepted Hayes before he reached the family's home. Questions were being raised regarding the police's reluctance to enter the family home. When they surrounded the home, the entire family was still alive and the gasoline had not yet been poured from room to room. In fact, Komosarevsky and Hayes were completely oblivious to the fact that the home had been surrounded by police. Under intense scrutiny, Cheshire police tried to claim they arrived at the home just as Komosarevsky and Hayes fled, but they later had to admit that this wasn't the case. There was a national outcry for more information regarding the timeline of events but Lieutenant J. Paul Vance said there would be no more information released to the public because it was none of the public's concern. A couple of months later, the court imposed a gag order, which prevented police, lawyers, and witnesses from speaking about the case with the media. Kamasarevsky and Hayes would subsequently be charged with six counts each of capital felony murder, as well as a plethora of other charges relating to the home invasion. Their actions inside the petted home led to a heated debate over the death penalty. The murders had completely stunned not only the community, but the entire nation, who were left pondering the question, if you're not safe in your own home, then where are you safe? At the time, Connecticut had not yet abolished capital punishment, but two years later, the Connecticut General Assembly voted to repeal the death penalty. The repeal was vetoed by Governor Jody Rell, in part because Komosarevsky and Hayes had not yet gone to trial. The majority of the community felt that if anybody deserved the death penalty, it was Komosarevsky and Hayes. Pettit agreed, writing an opinion piece in The Current, in which he wrote he supported capital punishment. Because it is just and because it prevents murderers from ever harming again, by intentionally, unlawfully taking the life of another, a murderer breaks a sacrosanct law of society and forfeits his own right to live. The prosecution unsurprisingly decided that they would be seeking the death penalty against both men if they were convicted. It was a decision that led to Hayes attempting suicide while in his jail cell, awaiting trial. Once he was released from the hospital, he repeatedly attempted to plead guilty in exchange for a sentence of life in prison without parole. All of his offers were rejected. Hayes was the first of the two defendants to stand trial. He had turned on Komisarevsky, contending that the entire plan was his idea, including the rapes and murders. He maintained that when he went to the Pettit home that night, he thought the plan was to tie the family up and rob them. When Kamasarevsky hit Dr. Pettit with a baseball bat, Hayes claimed he was stunned. He also alleged when he returned back to the Pettit home with Jennifer after the bank Komosarevsky informed him that Dr. Pettit had died from his injuries. According to Hayes, Komosarevsky told him that in order to cover their tracks, they needed to kill the rest of the family. Hayes acknowledged that he had strangled Jennifer to death and said he had done so because he felt betrayed by Komosarevsky. Hayes also contended that it was Komosarevsky who had poured the gasoline throughout the home and lit the match. In court, Hayes was painted as a struggling drug addict who disappointed every single person in his life. Not one family member testified as a defense witness, but his brothers had penned a letter to be entered into evidence. It read, in part, Stephen is what Steve is because, ultimately, he is a coward. Stephen is cunning and calculating. As the family of this monster, we all have to live with the nightmares. Hayes' family said that he deserved whatever fate was coming to him and criticized the justice system for repeatedly paroling him and Kamisarevsky simply because their prior crimes were not deemed violent. As Matthew said, there is enough to hang him without any family involvement. Stephen is alone. He will answer to God. He will answer to the law. Dr. Eric Goldsmith, a psychiatrist hired by the defense, would tell the jury that Hayes had been manipulated into participating by Komisarevsky, he testified that he had read Komisarevsky's journals, reaching the conclusion that based on his writing, he displayed psychopathic tendencies. He believed that Komisarevsky derived pleasure when recounting the home invasion, while on the other hand, Hayes expressed remorse as indicated by his suicide attempt. On the 5th of October, 2010, Stephen Hayes was found guilty on 16 of 17 counts, including three counts of murder, six counts of capital felony, the sexual assault of Jennifer, four counts of first-degree kidnapping, third-degree burglary, and the baseball bat assault on Dr. Pettit. The state had not proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Hayes had intended to kill Haley and Michaela, and he was acquitted of the arson charge. As the verdict was read aloud, Hayes stared at the floor not raising his head once. Outside of court, Dr. Pettit said he believed that Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela were looking down on him, giving him the strength to endure the trial. He said, "'We did our best to keep our faith in God "'that justice would be served. "'There is some relief, but my family is still gone. "'It doesn't bring them back. "'It doesn't bring back the home that we had.'" but certainly a guilty verdict is a much better sense of relief than a verdict of not guilty. The penalty phase was scheduled for the following week. Dr. Pettit considered presenting a victim impact statement, but opted against it. As he said, Although I believe it is my constitutional right to do so, I have regretfully decided after a great deal of thought and research not to request at the present time that I be permitted to present a formal victim impact statement at the upcoming capital sentencing trial of Stephen Hayes. Jurors decided that Hayes needed to die for his actions, and they sent him directly to death row. Kamisarevsky's trial was to follow in September of 2011. Kamisarevsky attempted to place the blame directly on his co-defendant. Throughout both trials, Dr. Pettit remained composed despite the horrific testimony and evidence. During Kamasarevsky's trial, his sister, Naomi, told the courtroom how he did not like Dr. Pettit because he felt as though he had not done enough to save the lives of his family. The critical piece of evidence presented by the prosecution was Kamasarevsky's videotaped confession, during which he admitted to everything, including the sexual assault on Michaela.
2: Do you know where you are right now? The Cheshire Place Do um... you know why you're here? Hmm. Uh, for a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Okay.
0: Throughout the confession, Komisarevsky had the audacity to call Michaela by her nickname, KK. During his confession, he said it was Haye's idea to purchase the gasoline. He stated, Um, And I was surprised um, that gasoline was even a factor in what was going on here. We were just supposed to get the money and get out, and he was going on and on and on about DNA. And even a drop of sweat or uh, a hair falling off your head is enough to put us in jail because they have our DNA on record. Komoserevsky also claimed it was Hay's idea to kill the family, not his. Komisarevsky was found guilty of 17 charges, including three counts of murder, four counts of kidnapping, and charges of burglary, arson, and assault. During the sentencing phase, the defense attempted to save Komisarevsky's life by portraying him as a man damaged by childhood sexual abuse and a man marred by mental health issues and a strict religious upbringing. His defense attorney, Jeremiah Donovan, said that his client was doomed from birth, and cited two statutory mitigating factors. That Kamasarevsky's mental capacity was so impaired that he could not conform his behavior to the law, and that his role in the murders was relatively minor compared to that of Hayes. The defense team's attempt failed, and the jury sentenced Kamasarevsky to death. He joined the 10 other men, including Hayes, that called Connecticut's death row home. In the aftermath of the trials, Dr. Pettit commented that there was never complete closure when you lose a family, but the verdicts had given him a semblance of peace. He said that he was looking forward to getting back to some sort of a normal life, adding that it was an enticing prospect. To honor the lives of Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela, Dr. Pettit established the Pettit Family Foundation. In his words, The purpose was to try and create good out of evil. He became a strong proponent of capital punishment, but in August of 2015, the state of Connecticut abolished the death penalty. The decision was retroactive, meaning it applied to all earlier cases. Both Hayes and Komisarevsky's death sentences were commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Today, they both remain incarcerated. Dr. Pettit eventually found love again, and in November 2016, he was elected to the State House of Representatives. The home where Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela lost their lives was raised to the ground. In its place, a memorial garden was planted. The place that had once stood as a reminder of death and destruction now stands as a reminder of life, that even in the face of tragedy, something positive can grow. The brutality and random nature of the Cheshire murders, as the case became known, completely upended notions of suburban security. Before the home invasion murders, Cheshire had only had three murders in the past ten years, but none of them were nearly as brutal. While over two decades have now passed, the after-effects of the deadly home invasion still linger in the bedroom town of Cheshire. The tragic case struck right to the core of a collective fear— A fear that motivates people to double check their doors at night and to buy security systems. But still, once in a while, evil does indeed come walking right through an unlocked door, completely violating a family's sense of security, community, and justice. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week with a new episode. Thank you for listening, and please be safe we